The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's continue in our worship together as we look to God's Word. If you want to get your Bible out, you can open up to Matthew 18. That's where we'll be. And a couple of other selected Scripture passages. And provided an insert there for you if you want to take notes. There aren't any blanks or anything, but just so you got ahead of There are five points that I want to make on the topic of the day, which is church discipline. We are going through distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship. I mentioned last week that we had 20 or so of those. Those are just kind of key summary points of what our church is all about, what we stand for, what our convictions are. Somebody mentioned to me last Sunday uh, that they found another church that had distinctives, and they were surprised to hear that. They thought that only GBF had distinctives, so they were giving me a lot of credit that I invented church distinctives, so I appreciate that. Uh, but actually, no, a lot of churches have distinctives. I'd say most churches these days have distinctives. Uh, many times you can find them on their website. And as a matter of fact, I did peruse around a little bit looking at some local churches and others looking at their distinctives. Uh, we trust that the Grace Bible Fellowship distinctives all flow out of Scripture. They come from the Bible. In other words, we didn't just sit around and, well, what do we want to do? And just kind of make it up. Because there are churches that have plenty of distinctives that they want to be known by that are not in the Bible. And one common one that I was seeing on church websites was one of their distinctives was they want to create awareness so that churches and people in their churches will be green and environmentalism uh, heavy. And uh, that's not in the Bible, but anyway, that's a man-made distinctive. So in contrast to that, what our, we, our church wants to be about biblical distinctives because that's what the church is supposed to be doing. And so we didn't invent or make up anything. We just looked at the New Testament church, the mandate of Jesus, Here's what they did. Here's what they're, here's what they told us to do. So let's just replicate that. And that's where our distinctives came from. We trust right out of the Bible. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about a very important distinctive of Grace Bible Fellowship, and that is a biblical church membership, which is huge. A lot of implications of that. If you weren't here and you've been going to our church for a while, yet you're not a member, I would encourage you to listen to that and look at the notes. Very important. Uh, it may answer some questions or uh, clear up a lot of stuff. It did for me and because I got plenty of feedback from folks last week, most of whom were not members of our church, to ask follow-up questions. So I'm glad I preached on it, and it did clarify some things, and that's the point. So that was church membership. Uh, there are no, There's no certain order in which I'm covering these distinctives. There's about 20. I'm not going to cover all of them, just some of the main ones I think that we need to talk about that would be helpful for newer folks to our church who've come in the last three years. And that's why uh, this week I've chosen church discipline, that is a distinctive of Grace Bible Fellowship because, it, is it a, because it's a distinctive of the early church in the New Testament. It was a distinctive of the book of Acts. It was the distinctive of Jesus' ministry. So today's topic and the distinctive of the day is church discipline or biblical church discipline. The main text being Matthew 18, if you want to look there. Uh, Tim read it a little earlier. So let's go there. And I've got five points I want to talk about. Um, Having worked in a few churches over the last 20 years and as a pastor and a shepherd and an elder and um, Bible teacher, those kind of things, boy, early on I be, came to the conviction, uh, especially when I started teaching and preaching more regularly, that I need to teach on or preach on church discipline at least once a year in whatever church I'm at. So I did that at the last church that I was at when I had an opportunity to preach it's been a year and we haven't talked about church discipline. I'm going to talk about that and how important it is because it is so basic and fundamental to the church and to church life, especially when you're a pastor because you see more stuff. Uh, you see the big picture and you interact with a lot of folks. And so the practice of church discipline in my life is actually implemented just about every single week of my life from one degree to another. That's why I think it is so important because it happens all the time or it's required or needed all the time in church life. Um, and also there's a lot of ignorance on the part of a lot of Christians and churches, and that's why it also needs to be preached on and taught on a regular basis. So there's absolute clarity about what church discipline is. I think about of the five churches I've worked at, two understood church discipline and actually implemented it. Uh, one church and its leadership that I worked at, I was an elder and a pastor there, they didn't know anything about church discipline. They were just totally ignorant. The elders were of what the Bible said. I was not the senior or the lead pastor at the time. I was an associate pastor, but the head pastor had a seminary degree, not from the master seminary, had a seminary degree, didn't even know about church discipline, 
never implemented it, and there were all kinds of problems in that church. And I'm just kind of sitting on the sidelines. There's an answer. Jesus has an answer to this. And we finally got to talk about it, but a lot of damage in the meantime. And then there was another church I pastored at where, again, I wasn't the lead pastor. I was an associate pastor where they knew about church discipline. They knew Matthew 18. They knew Matthew 5. And the leadership decided, we are not going to do this. They issued a mandate. And the pastors will not do this. I was like, well, why not? Because it's too divisive. It's <laughs> like, wow. So we are just going to blatantly violate Scripture and not do what Jesus said. So that was my personal experience in churches. Um, but it is vitally important. Um, church discipline. Only twice in the Gospels, four Gospels, only two times did Jesus mention the word church explicitly. Two times. Isn't that amazing? Yet he's the head of the church. He founded the church. Uh, the first time Jesus mentioned the church is in Matthew 16 where he promised that he would build the church. Matthew 16, 18, I will build the church. Jesus' church. The second time and only other time that Jesus mentions the word church is in Matthew 18, the passage I want to look at today, verses 15 through 18. And the context there is when Jesus commanded believers to maintain spiritual health in the church by practicing biblical church discipline. The procedure for implementing church discipline that Jesus outlined is straightforward. It is obligatory. You must do it. You don't have the option to say, no, I guess we're not going to do this. But it's obligatory. It is systematic. There's an order to follow and you can't mess up the order of events, which I've seen happen. And it's the only recourse for dealing with sin in the church. It is the only recourse for dealing with sin in the church the right way in a way that honors and glorifies God. There are churches and pastors trying to deal with sin in other ways. This is Jesus' divinely inspired way, so we should probably do that. When church discipline done in a biblical manner is neglected or when it is supplemented with alternatives, then the church suffers. Everybody suffers. Careful and courageous obedience to it, church discipline brings God's solutions and God's blessings. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 18 and this process of church discipline. And like I said, I've got five points here. Uh, church discipline. Discipline. Uh, what word comes, when you, what do you, when you think of discipline, what do you think of? Well, you might think a lot of a lot of things. You might think of working real hard at exercise or having self-restraint and not eating too much food. Uh, someone might be thinking, ooh, that's when I get a spanking. I mean, there's a lot of things you could think of when it comes to the word discipline. And all of those are actually uh, components of the word discipline means. Actually, at the heart of the word discipline, from a biblical point of view, is disciple. To disciple, to teach, to instruct, to train. That's also at the heart of it. There's positive training, there's negative training. There's pleasant training, there's painful training. So when we are talking about church discipline, we're talking about the pain component for the most part. Uh, discipline, of disciplining sinners, wayward sinners. And every single one of us is a sinner, so every single one of us in the church is a potential candidate for being confronted with church discipline. So that's what I mean by church discipline. The process that Jesus implemented for every Christian to deal with sin in the church, to expose sin, confront sin, deal with sin, try to repair sin, bring healing out of sin, bring restoration, growth, reconciliation out of sin. That's what I mean by discipline. And it involves the church. There are informal components to it and there are also formal components to it. And so we'll Talk about those. So at the heart of church discipline is confronting sin, dealing with sin in a systematic biblical manner to bring about God's solution. Church discipline. Jesus laid out the pattern. And I just want to read Matthew 18, verse 15 through 18 again. Jesus is talking. He says, if your brother sins, if your brother, so we're talking about a fellow believer that you know within the community of believers and Jesus talks about in the church, so this would be for local churches, if there's a fellow saint, a fellow professing believer in your church that has a sin issue that you are aware of. If your brother sins or your brother or sister in Christ sins, go and reprove him or her in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother or your sister. Verse 16 But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that is the simple, straightforward process of church discipline, of dealing with sin in the church. And actually, Jesus lays out four steps. So you've got to go in the right order. It's procedural. You can't bypass a step or two just because you don't like the person or you're lacking patience or whatever it is. So you've got to go in Jesus' order. There are exceptions, and we'll talk about that. So anytime we are dealing with sin in the church, so the question is, uh, what do you do when you have a fellow brother or sister that you know that has sinned against you or you know that they are in sin and it is going unaddressed? Well, the answer is you need to address it. If you're knowledgeable of it, uh, in obedience to God, you need to deal with the sin. Well, how do we do that? Let's go ahead and look at it. So in dealing with sin through church discipline, step number one, which actually is not mentioned here in Matthew 18, it's a preliminary step to church discipline, but Jesus did mention it in a couple of other places, most specifically in Matthew 7. Step number one in church discipline is prayerful consideration. Prayerful consideration. Before... Uh, you know that somebody's in sin, they've offended you, they've sinned against you, you think they need to be rebuked, they need to be exposed, whatever it is, and you want to confront them. Before you do that, Scripture is clear, Jesus taught on this, you need to consider prayerful, yeah, prayerful consideration. In other words, pray to God, put the matter in His hands, ask for His wisdom in this, James 1.5. And two passages I want you to look at regarding preparing your heart formally before you proceed Informal church discipline by confronting a fellow brother or sister in the Lord with their sin. The first one let's look at is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Here's a passage that people misunderstand or misteach or sometimes even distort and turn on its ear time and time again. And Matthew 7, verse 1 is that famous verse where it says, Do not judge lest ye be judged. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. Actually, there are other places where Jesus says judge. Judge, confront, rebuke. So by this verse, it has to be read in context. Jesus is not saying categorically, don't ever judge another person, don't ever confront another person. He's not saying that. He's saying be careful how you judge. There are things you need to do before you render a verdict. And when you do come to a verdict, you need to go about it in the right manner. So it's, He's talking about a heart check and an attitude check right here. Before you go judging someone or confronting their sins. So let's look at, that's the context. Do not judge lest you be judged. Verse 2, 4, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. So the standard by which we judge other people, God is going to hold us to the same standard. That's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? Because God is perfect. He knows everything. He even knows hearts and motives and those kind of things. For in the way in which you judge, so you need to be a fair judge. You need to have all the facts. You will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. Verse 3, and why do you look at the speck or the piece of sawdust in somebody else's eye that's bothering you? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? That's their sin. They've got this really small sin. It's a sin, but it's a really small sin. Or an offense. But you do not notice the log or the two-by-four that is in your own eye. That is hypocritical, isn't it? Ooh, let me take out that little piece of sawdust in your eye. Well, you can't quite reach them because you've got a 10-foot 2x4 in your eye and you can't reach. How hypocritical is that? So this is very graphic. Jesus is being sarcastic. He's making a point. Making a point. He's getting across. Don't be a hypocrite. In other words, he's saying do self-examination first before you confront anybody else about their sin. Examine your own heart. Because we're all sinners. Verse 4. Now, Jesus doesn't just leave it there and say don't ever judge anybody and just deal with your own two by four and that's it and don't ever confront anybody. He doesn't say that. He follows up with that verse four. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. Verse five, you hypocrite. Wow, Jesus was straight to the point, wasn't he? You two-faced hypocrite. He's talking to believers, disciples in his midst, by the way. First, take out the log of your own eye. In other words, do self-examination of your own heart. Are you guilty of sin before God? Have you offended anybody else? And ask God to expose that and reveal that in your life and then you confess your sin to God and make amends with whoever you have sinned against first. You need to get right with God and other people first before you go around as the 
uh, judge police of other people's affairs. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly, then you'll be objective about it. What, that's what he means. You'll be able to see clearly and you'll be objective. You'll have the right balance of judgment and mercy, right? You'll be able to see clearly take the speck out of your, uh, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So prayerful consideration. Examine your own heart. One more passage that's a good parallel to this is Galatians 6. Look at that. Galatians 6, 1. Same thing. Before you go confront somebody's sin and deal with their sin, it's prayerful consideration. Examine yourself first. Galatians 6, 1 and following. Brethren, that means believers, fellow believers in the church of Galatia. Paul is saying, a church that I planted, a church that I pastored, a church that I love, a church where I served. He's talking to a place where he pastored. These were saints. These are Christians. Brethren, even if a man or a person, any Christian, even if a man is caught in any trespass. Okay, so there's somebody in your midst that's in sin and you need to deal with it. You who are spiritual... All he's saying is there, you need to have spiritual maturity before you go confront a fellow believer in sin. You need to be mature. You need to be level-headed. You need to be objective. You need to be prayed up. You need to go with the facts of what really happened and also biblical knowledge needs to drive the process. That's what he means by spiritual. He's not saying you who are only the spiritual Christians or the super Christians in the church can do this. That's not what he's saying. Any Christian is potentially a spiritual Christian at any given moment. You're filled with the Spirit. So if anybody's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore the sinner. See, that's the goal. The goal in confronting sin, the goal in the church discipline process is not excommunication. Get them out of here. That might be the goal of some people. I think the Pharisees specialized in that. That is not the goal of church discipline. It is not excommunication or humiliating them or embarrassing them or shaming them. That is not the goal. The goal is right here. Restore such a one. And the Greek word that Paul used is very specific. It was a common word used to repair fishing nets that were torn, to mend them, repair them, restore them, so that they are functionally useful once again. It's the exact same word that was a medical term in Paul's day, where he had a broken bone. The broken bone was adjusted, fixed, healed, perfectly restored. That is our goal with a sinning, errant Christian. It is full restoration in the church, among the saints, before God. Isn't that a great thing? The God of the second chance. The, the merciful God. The God is who for, forgiving. The same Jesus that told Peter, don't forgive him just seven times. Peter thought he was being generous, by the way. Jesus, shall I forgive the sinner seven times? Because in Peter's day, probably among the Pharisees, it was, okay, forgive him three times. Three forgiveness, and then three strikes and you're out. So Peter thought he was being very gracious. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive seven times. And Jesus said, nah, you don't get it, Peter. Seven times 70, and it's on a daily basis. So in other words, you've got a supernatural capacity to forgive and keep on forgiving if you really are a Christian. Keep on forgiving. That is the grace of God. Restore the sinner. Notice, in a spirit of gentleness, not looking down your nose, confronting the sinner as though we are superior to the sinner. We're not. It's in a spirit of gentleness. Speaking the truth in love, Doing it in the right manner. This is even talking about methodology, your mode, your approach, not harshly, with gentleness. While you're doing this, by the way, you're confronting the sinner, you're all prayed up, uh, you think you're being objective, you're trying to be gentle, you're led by the Spirit of God, and while you're in the process, you're also, it says, looking to yourself. Looking to yourself. That's uh, synonymous with Matthew 17 where Jesus said, evaluate yourself. Watch out for that two by four in your own eye. You can get in trouble with that. It'll be a trap. Looking to yourself as you confront the sinner, lest you too be tempted. You can be tempted in a lot of ways. You can get caught into their own sin. You can get dragged and pulled into it and be a part of it. You can also be uh, tempted to be proudful as you're addressing the sinner because you think or I think we are better than... the. Oh boy, look at this horrible sin. I would never do this kind of sin. My sins are respectable sins. My sins are good sins. Your sins, boy, these are horrible. So that's what he's talking about. Man, you better be careful. Don't get caught into this. Sin is dirty. And everybody's hands can get dirty real quick. So that is prayerful consideration. So if you've got to examine your own heart right now, do you have a grievance in your mind? Just think. Do you have a grievance against another believer? 
in close proximity to you in your own heart right now. You need to lay that before God and you need to begin praying. God, give me the right attitude towards that person. Prepare my heart if I have to talk to them and confront this sin. Give me a forgiving heart in the event that they do repent. Huge. So really, step number one in the church discipline process is prayerful consideration. Then if you're all prayed up, ready to go, and you think the sin needs to be dealt with in this person's life that you know about, then you do step number two, and that will take us back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Step number two is what I call private conversation. You realize, okay, I need to deal with it, so I need to have a private conversation after prayerful consideration, private conversation. Private meaning just the two of you. Just the two of you. That's what Jesus said. So that's Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, I think Luke, the parallel passage says, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 5 basically says the same thing. Somebody has, you haven't sinned against you, you have an offense against someone. If your brother sins against you or your sister, then you need to, here's the things you need to do. So write down in your own heart, if you've got a problem with another believer because of a sin issue, then Jesus gives some imperatives of what we need to do. You need to go. That is huge. You need to go to them. You don't sit around, twiddle your thumbs, and wait for them to come to you, thinking it is their obligation. It is your obligation. The onus is on you. The onus is on me. I'm the one uh, that knows about the sin. I'm the one that has a growing conviction. It needs to be dealt with, so I am obligated to go and talk to that person. And you need to go. In Matthew 5, Jesus said you need to go quickly. Because if you don't go quickly to resolve a sin issue or an issue... Uh, in the body of Christ, among believers, that will create, Satan will create a foothold and he will create disunity and that thing will just grow like cancer and spread throughout the church quicker, quicker than you can blink an eye. So it's not just go, it is go quickly. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You need to go. That is an imperative. It is a command. It is not an option. You go. Okay, so I go to the person and I reprove them. You are to go and reprove them. The Greek word here is Verbally, you need to speak to them. It's a word reserved for speaking to someone. The implication is face to face. That's what we need to do. So that you have to muster up. Actually, you can't muster up anything. It's the spirit of God has got to give you the courage to do this because this is very hard. My experience among your average Christian is they refrain from doing step number one because it's a frightful prospect to go. And it is a frightful prospect to go to somebody and talk to them privately about sin. They lack courage. They are overwhelmed with fear and all these thoughts of, well, what if this happens? What if they think this about me? And what? If, and boy, isn't this kind of unloving? So there's a lot of things that go through our mind on a human level that prevent us from doing the most basic fundamental step of church discipline, and that is go and speak to that person. That's where you need the Spirit of God to help you, to give you the courage to do this. This is so important. Go and reprove. Verbally talk to them. So that means... Uh, you can't use email. Sorry. That's, that's cheap. That's a cheap shot. You can't write a letter. And God forbid that you would write an anonymous letter rebuking somebody for their sin. You write an anonymous letter, that just means you don't care for them. You really don't. I was told by a pastor, uh, 20 years ago, and he was an experienced pastor, and he said, you know what I do with all my anonymous letters of criticism and rebuke? I throw them away. <laughs> the first thing, he gets the letter and see who was it signed by. He doesn't even read the letter. Up, no signature, trash. And he encouraged every other Christian to do the same. If it's a letter of confrontation. This person really, number one, they're not doing the biblical model that Jesus laid out. And secondly, they are not motivated by love. They're not seeking restoration. So it's go and verbally talk to that person. The next thing you do, so you go, you talk to them. And also, this is key in verse 15. You talk to them in private. You talk to them in private. This is the... The grace of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God. What God is doing here, what Jesus is laying out, is the protection and the preservation of the reputation of the sinner. Isn't that awesome? You keep it at the smallest circle of offense. You go and talk to them in private. You get sinned against. You don't go announce it to all of your friends. Well, guess what so-and-so said and did to me? And shoot out all these emails and all these phone conversations. You go and talk to 37 people, spreading gossip all over the place. That's what Jesus is trying to prevent here. You go and you talk to that person in private. It's a mandate. It's not an option. And that's why when people come to me as a pastor and they, they have a grievance against another believer, then all, my first question is, well, have you talked to that person yet? 
Sometimes the answer is, yes, I have. Sometimes it's, no, I haven't. And then if they haven't, I'm just going to assume they're ignorant of Matthew 18. And I'm not going to scold them. I'll just say, well, are you familiar with Matthew 18? And right here, uh, we're all sinners. We're going to offend each other. We're going to sin against each other in the body of Christ. And Jesus laid out a mechanism to deal with that problem. And here it is. It's beautiful. It is supernatural. And since this person sinned against you, you are obligated to go and talk to that person verbally, prayed up, and you do it in private. So you shouldn't be talking to me really about this or anybody else. You go to that person directly. And you ask God for wisdom about the timing of that event. So that is huge. Uh, I want to give a couple other reasons of why people don't take the first step. Because, by the way, there's I've got five steps in the church discipline process laid out here. But if people in the church on a regular routine basis did this step faithfully, regularly, for the most part, that would eliminate all the problems. That would eliminate all the disunity. That would eliminate all the unforgiveness towards one another. If they faithfully followed through biblically on this step right here in Matthew 18.15, That would do maintenance to preserve unity in the church. That has been my experience. Because when people faithfully do, in a biblical manner, this step, God honors it, and He rectifies the problem, and He brings resolution between believers. Not all the time, but most of the time. That's why it's so important, and that's why I was just thinking of, why. well, why don't Christians go and do this step? Well, out of fear and cowardice, I already mentioned that. Secondly, out of ignorance, they're just... They've never really been taught specifically and deliberately about Matthew 18, 15 through 18 and how specific it is and what a mandate it is. So it's ignorance. Uh, other people don't do it because they don't think it will make a difference. I've talked to, I've counseled plenty of Christians like that. They've got a grievance against somebody and it's been a long time and, or a short time. Well, have you talked to them? No, I haven't. Well, you need to. And here's what Jesus said. And I've had people saying, well, it's not going to do any good anyway, so I don't want to do that. I'm like, wow. Wow. That is a hardened heart. This is Jesus talking, not me. As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter if it makes a difference or not. Usually what they mean by, well, it won't make a difference anyway. What they're saying is, if I go and confront this person about their sin, that person won't listen to me. They will dismiss me. They will blow me off. They won't care. That's what they mean. And I'm thinking, you know what? Look at the text carefully. Jesus Jesus assumed there were going to be people like that. That's why there's a verse 16. And a next step. You can do step two if you first exhaust step one and you get the result you were expecting. Because Jesus provided for the scenario you just talked about, uh, Jesus assumed there were going to be sinners who don't respond, they don't listen. So that's not a legitimate excuse to say, well, it's not going to make a difference anyway. No, you need to do the right thing. Uh, why else don't Christians do this first step? They have wrong thinking. And some Christians actually think going to confront the sinner, that's an unloving act. They think that confronting somebody and rebuking somebody is unloving. No, as a matter of fact, exposing, confronting someone's sin is one of the, actually the, one of the most loving things you can do to help that person out and help the body of Christ preserve unity. And it honors God. God wants unity and peace among His people, not division. So that's a wrong thought. And the other reason people don't do step one is they simply just don't care about that other person. They don't like that person. And so instead of going confronting that person and to seek resolution and peace, they would rather just talk to all their friends and gossip about that person. And that's just a, a lack of love. So we can't do that. We've got to follow through on private conversation as Jesus asked. Uh, oh, by the way, Jesus said in verse 15, this is very important. If your brother sins, okay, that's what you've got to do first. You have to, maybe you've got a grievance against somebody and you're frustrated and upset with them and it's just bothering you and you've got to be in your bonnet and you can't sleep at night and this has been going on for weeks. So do I proceed with step one or not? Right here of Matthew eighteen fifteen, You have to discern what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, okay? It doesn't mean if your brother or sister hurt your feelings by something they said that wasn't a sin. You, you get, there's a distinction. Because sometimes we're offended by things that aren't sinful, right? Somebody's, maybe it's somebody's conviction or opinion that differs from yours. It's not a sin issue. Or maybe it's a preference they have and it's not a sin issue. So you've got to sort that out. Maybe it's strictly a lack of communication and it's not a sin issue. So then what you need to do there is just talk to that person and sort it out. Speak the truth in love. And there's, and then you find, in the end you find out, well, wow, there wasn't really a sin issue here. I just came to a wrong conclusion based on an assumption I made of something you said and we didn't communicate very well. And that's why the Bible says speak the truth in love. So you've got to determine whether this is really a biblical sin issue. Because the Gospel of Luke says when you confront the sinner about his sin, you need to present the evidence, is what it said. The evidence of sin. With chapter and verse. Really. 
to show them that they are sinning against Scripture, they're sinning against God, and they're sinning against the body of Christ. So, very important. If your brother sins, then you go through, go to them, go to them privately. You reprove them, you talk to them about their sin, and then uh, look at the end of that verse. Very important. Then it's all up to them of how they respond. If he listens to you, if he hears you, if she listens to you. So you laid out your case, you presented the... So they're going to respond one of two ways, right? They're either going to heed what you say, they're going to be concerned, they're going to be convicted, uh, they're going to have a softened heart, and it's going to be readily apparent, right? You can pretty much tell, oh, wow, did I do that? They might not even realize what they did. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that I offended you that way. I'm sorry that I said that it slipped, and wow, that is wrong. That is inappropriate. Please forgive me. Wow, that's somebody who is listening to you. That is somebody who needs to be granted forgiveness. And you'll, you'll be able to tell by their heart, their words, and their actions. And that's what Jesus means. If he listens to you, if he responds to your rebuke, it's a beautiful thing. The Spirit of God obviously was preparing their heart to hear this. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've won. What does that mean? You've won your brother. They repented of their sin. They acknowledged it. They asked for forgiveness. You forgive them. You grant them total forgiveness. They have a clean slate. And this issue is dead, never to be brought up again, ever. It's over. And theoretically, the only people that know about it was you and that person. And that's it. The rest of the world doesn't know anything. And that sin is hidden, washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that happens. But let's go on to the next step. After prayerful consideration and private conversation, there are times where people don't listen to you. You confront them on their sin. And instead of them listening to you and heeding and being convicted and repenting, uh, they'll have somewhat of a, they will justify their behavior. They will try to explain away their behavior. They'll put a spin on it. Well, you don't understand. This was what was it. And they'll go on and on. And you can tell. And they, or they dismiss you. Oh, come on. You're too sensitive. Get over it. Well, even if they are too sensitive, the fact that they went this far to bring it up, you need to give attention to it. So Jesus gives us recourse to somebody who doesn't have the heart, the right response. They're not listening to you. This could go on in a family. This could go on between a married couple. Because you've been living together for so long as a married couple. We're not so quick to evaluate, stop, give grace. Oh, wow, did I do that? Oh, was I offensive? This could happen between siblings in a family. This happens in the local church all the time. All kinds of relationships. So that takes us to the next step. After prayerful consideration and private conversation, uh, then Jesus says there needs to be plural confrontation. Plural this goes beyond a one-on-one conversation. Now you need to go to the next step. The person didn't listen to you. By the way, in that step of uh, private conversation, say you go to them one time and they kind of listen, they don't say much, and you're not quite sure how they responded. Well, they didn't repent. Well, you can go again and have another private conversation. Or maybe you went to them and they didn't respond as well as you would have liked. You don't just jump to the next step, I don't think. I think you need to be patient. Let the Spirit of God work. Maybe bring some conviction. And then maybe they're softened and warmed up over the next three to four days. Go again. So I'd say, you know, try this two or three times to see if there's any softening of the Spirit of God on their heart before you go to this next step, which is plural confrontation. And that's Matthew eighteen sixteen. So let's look at that. Jesus says, but if uh, your brother or sister doesn't listen to you, they blow you off. Well, you still need to deal, deal with the sin. Then you need to take one or two more with you. Two more what? Two, one or two more believers with you. So it could just be one person. So they didn't listen to you the first time. So then you bring one other person. And so now there's the two of you and you're going to confront them in private. Now it's the three of you, two against one. And the spokesperson is the one who confronted them the first time. The other one is simply just a witness to watch, to monitor, to be objective, to assess what's going on. And to bring a greater weight of conviction regarding the scenario, because it could have been that you know, the first time around, it's like, oh, it's no big deal. Just get over it. And then now they bring back another person. It's like, it's a weightier matter. Wow, I've got a greater audience now. This is significant. I better pay attention. And this always gets somebody's attention. Boy, when it gets to this stage, if you're bringing one or two other people with you, one or two, uh, many times you'll get a reaction that you didn't the first time. You'll get softening or you'll get repentance or you'll get uh, at least a panicked response. Oh, and th- that person has an attitude change. So this is the wisdom of God bringing a greater sense of conviction and weightier uh, importance to the matter. God will use that, verse 16. But if they don't listen to you, then take one or two more witnesses with you so that by the... And then he quotes from the Old Testament. This is how they proceed in the Old Testament. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
So these one or two people, they serve as witnesses objectively watching to help monitor and mediate this process so it doesn't get out of hand. All with the same goal of trying to restore and reconcile the two people who are at odds with one another. So I've been involved in many situations where that where I had to go be a witness or I had to encourage somebody else to go to this next step. And it happens. And, and many times in my experience, if it gets to this level, and these are actually two legitimate believers, then most of the time in my experience is that it, re, it is resolved at that level. Rarely does it go beyond there. If they've been doing things properly and you're dealing with two believers, rarely does it go beyond this step of plural confrontation. Jesus goes on, uh, verse 17. So you bring one or two witnesses, verse 17. They might not even listen to them. They might have a hardened heart. They're full of pride. They don't see it. And it's, it's, that takes a lot of courage to blow three people off. And Jesus said that happens, verse 17. And if that step, if he refuses to listen to them, wow, then what do you do? Well, then you up the ante in terms of confrontation and accountability and make it even a weightier matter of conviction that you bring to the plate or actually to the table of the sinner. And that is if they don't even listen to the three, the two of you or the three of you and you've been persistent and biblical, then the next step in verse 17 is you tell it to the church. You tell it to the church. Wow. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So that would be the next step after plural confrontation. If that doesn't work, if he doesn't listen to you, you go to the next step, which I call public condemnation. Public condemnation. Tell it to the church, the corporate body of Christ. Well, what does that mean, tell it to the church? Because people define that and implement that in different ways. Different churches I have served at have interpreted that differently. Tell it to the church. One church that I served at for a few years, they believed that when you get to this level, telling it to the church means first you tell it to the elders and then you prepare everybody and then you announce it on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night at the worship service when everybody's there. Not just the members, but everybody that came to church that day. But that is the church. That is one version of the church. And then they announce it, usually at communion time. And they name names. This person has gotten to this step. They have refused to repent. They've been confronted this many steps. We followed Matthew 18. We've gotten to this point and Jesus said, tell it to the church. So we are telling you, this person is in sin. Be, be in prayer for them. If you see them, uh, encourage them to repent of their sin and entrust them into the hands of God. So I, I was actually at a church that did it that way. Or actually two churches I was at. Uh, other churches just limit it to the membership of the church and they would notify the members at a special meeting and not in a public worship service where visitors are there, unbelievers are there, which could actually be a bad or a good thing according to Acts chapter 5 if unbelievers are there hearing this discipline because then they understand the fear of God. God is serious about sin, so it's not always a bad thing for them to hear this. Uh, but at a minimum, I think the elders need to be told, the leadership of the church, the elders and the deacons. Also at a minimum, I think all the members need to know Official members, if you have members in your church. So at GBF, that's what we have chosen to do. If we get to this level, we tell the elders and then we tell our members. Um, and Jesus goes on, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And so you tell your members and you encourage them, okay, here's one of our dear sisters or brothers in the Lord. Here was their sin. Uh, they were privately confronted. They hardened their heart. They did not listen. So then there was one or two witnesses brought against them they continued to resist they did not repent so it has been brought to our attention as the church the elders know about it so now we are telling you as the members you need to be in prayer on their behalf pray for repentance softening from the spirit of god and if you do see them call them back to the repentance but that would be reserved only for our members to have that private confidential knowledge and so it could be in the wisdom of God, that this the weight of the entire church confronting them of their sin will bring tremendous guilt and conviction to win them back. So in my 20 years of working at churches, very rarely does church discipline, in my experience, get to this level. These are like extreme cases. And I think at the last church I was at, uh, it got there was an incident that got this far. And I had to spearhead it because nobody else knew what to do. And it actually got kind of ugly in terms of this person was extremely divisive and then went to the Internet and started publicizing all of this and how they have been wronged and they got the shaft and 
named our church and named names and the whole world can see what a horrible church we were. I was like, wow, this is sad. And this is after it had reached this point where we notified the church, uh, confronted them with the sin, calling them back, telling them what the consequences would be. So it was pretty sad. Uh, they did not listen to us. And so that took us to the next step after public condemnation uh, would be the next step. And that is purposeful separation. You said, wow, this person hasn't responded at all to any point of confrontation, conviction. They blew the church off. They blew the leadership of the church off. There's pretty much nothing else you can do. By the way, if you're not a member, if you don't have membership in your church, you really can't implement Matthew 18 effectively. If you don't have an f- official membership process, if you don't know who your members are, you really can't do this. And if you do have dirt, church discipline and you try to do it, but you don't have church membership and you don't know who your members are, you really don't have any bite, especially towards the end of the process. That's why church membership is so important to know who your sheep are. And so that they, the sinner knows who their leaders that they're accountable to are. But if you get to the point where you've just blown off the church leadership, then it's like, wow. Well, that would be the next step, which is purposeful separation. And Jesus says this, man, if they blow off the church, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, I mean, Jesus says, even that, that is unimaginable. That a professing Christian who is one of the body and a member won't even listen to the entire corporate body of Christ. Wow! What a hardened heart we have. Refuses to listen even to the church. Then, this last step, purposeful separation. Then let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Man, there's a lot of speculation as to what that means. Let them be... As a Gentile and a tax gatherer, what does that mean, Jesus? Well, in Jesus' days, he was talking to disciples who were many believers. They were all Jews at the time. So the understanding when Jesus said this was, treat them like an unbeliever. That's all it means. Treat them like an unbeliever. This is I can't emphasize how important this is. This last step, which is officially step number five of the ones I have, purposeful separation. Step five is the first time in the process where you actually consider the possibility that that person is not a Christian. I can't tell you how many times where somebody had a conflict in the body, in the church, they came to me, they talked about the offense, they haven't even done step, they haven't even done prayerful consideration, and they're already saying, this person's probably not even a Christian. It's like, wow. Well, why not? Well, because they did this sin. Well, wow, that doesn't disqualify them. We all sin. So it's not until step five is the first time should be an inkling in your mind that, wow, it is possible and just maybe this person might not even be truly regenerate and we still don't know. But for the first four steps, we give them the benefit of the doubt. They are true believers. The Spirit of God lives inside of them. They will heed conviction from God and they will be wooed and brought back to the body of Christ. That needs to be our mindset every step of the way. Because the goal is restoration, not excommunication, not revenge, right? Vindictive retaliation on a personal level. That's not it. That's not the heart of Christ. So that that is hugely important, something that I have encountered too many times. Well, this person's not even a Christian. Don't even think that. Don't go there until we've gone throughout this whole process. Then when you get to this process where they haven't responded to anything, then you can say, wow, this person might not even be saved. So we are going to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. And that just simply means you treat them like an unbeliever. So if you treat them like an unbeliever, we're going to treat them like that here at GBF. We don't allow unbelievers, knowing unbelievers, to become a member of GBF. So it's like, well, uh, you're, you're going to be removed from membership because you're acting like an unbeliever and you're showing the fruits of being an unbeliever through this entire process. So we are just assuming you're an unbeliever. You're not even truly regenerate. That might make them really, really, really mad. But I've seen cases where people say, well, yeah, I'm not. I'm out of here. I hate the church anyway. You're all a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental people anyway. I've seen that happen. And they just revealed truly who they are. And that's why John said in First John, they, are, they left us. They're not among us because had they been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they have left us to show that they were never really of us. It's a long way of saying they probably weren't believers. And we treat them like a Gentile. So we don't treat them uh, looking down. And how else would you would you treat an unbeliever lovingly? Yeah, well, good answer. Yes. And with patience and prayerful. What else do you do with an unbeliever? You evangelize them. So this person needs the gospel. They need a reminder with a simple gospel. 
And you don't allow them all the privileges that a, that a believer has in the church. And all the, the, in my opinion, all the privileges that a member of your church has. All that intimacy and deep fellowship. Uh, and in another passage in the New Testament, uh, we are told by Paul and John not to have fellowship with such a person. Not even to have dinner with such a person. And there is a distinction between treating them like any other believer. I mean, unbeliever. Because certainly you want to have unbelievers at your house. But if you've got somebody who professed to be a Christian, see, that's the difference. And that's what Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5. If you've got a believer in your midst, a professing believer who is sinful and refuses to repent, then you do not interact and have fellowship with that professing believer. That's the difference. Because you can have unbelievers to your house all the time and they're probably not professing believers. That's okay. Because they're not being a hypocrite, right? They're not claiming the name of Christ. So you separate yourself from fellowship with this person and that brings even a greater sense of condemnation on their head. And you've got to trust that God is using that in His wisdom for a purpose and He hopes to bring conviction to their heart either to cause them to repent as a Christian and come back to the fold or for them to be saved for the first time in their life. So at the last church I was at, so I spearheaded this man year-long process of discipline with one of our members and it got to this last level. We told it to the church, and it was only the leadership of the church that we told. And they refused to repent, so we, we separated them. And we told them what the consequences are. We said the wrath of God, the judgment of God is upon your head until you repent. They got angry. They went off to another church and tried to hide. We contacted that church, writing websites all over the place, day after day on their blog about how horrible this church was. And then about six months later... uh I got a phone call from a local pastor here in the area who said, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yeah. Said, yeah, they go to my church. I said, oh, really? Wow. And then they said, yeah, this person, they want to meet with you. I said, oh, really? Why is that? We've met plenty of times. Well, they want to repent. It's like, wow, are you serious? Yeah, they realize they're wrong and they want to repent and ask you and your entire church for forgiveness. I was like, whoa. So I went and met with that person and that local pastor for about an hour. It was a fantastic meeting unbelievable they were in tears repenting as for forgiveness true truly contrite and broken and i was just like wow matthew 18 works thank god you know what you are doing there's a reason you do what you do because think about it that six month period imagine you know all of his christian friends that they told, uh, here's what this church did to me and here's how they treated me and they booted me and they kicked me out of the church and they say I'm not even a Christian. You, you can imagine the sympathy that, that that Christian got from other Christian friends and our church was marked. Unloving, cultic, uh, full of condemnation, lack of love. And despite that, this person was convicted, repented of sin, I believe was a Christian the entire time and just had a hardened heart. Uh, repented 100% of the time. We gave him total forgiveness. Wrote a letter from our church letting him know we totally forgive them and we will be praying for them. And they ended up uh, going to that church and being a productive member of that local church. Blessing that church. So that that was awesome. That that was a great story. They don't always end like that. But for me, that was incredible. That was, a mir- that was indeed a miracle of God, isn't it? Because who can change a hardened heart? Only God can. People say, well, we don't believe in miracles anymore. Well, yeah, we do. We believe in the greatest miracles of all. That God softens hardened, sinful hearts. He makes unbelievers holy saints. God is a God of miracles and continues to do miracles. Anytime God grants forgiveness to a sinner, that's the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? I am a recipient of the unbelievable, gracious miracle of God of His forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Purposeful separation. And by the way, if this happens in your local church and that person does repent in the end after purposeful separation, then 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, then welcome them back. Welcome them back and publicly reaffirm them. Why? Because you publicly condemned them. Give them a reception. The prodigal son. Kill the fatted cat. I mean calf. (laughs) Celebrate the grace of God. The forgiveness of God. And welcome them back. Reaffirm them, says the beloved Apostle Paul. Reassure them with your love. Get them assimilated back into the local church. Let them heal. Let them be restored. Let everybody know that they are reconciled. And this is the very essence of Christianity. This is the very meaning of why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost sinners, didn't He? 
He came to save and restore sinners. And we are all recipients of that. The grace of God. It is awesome. So Jesus' discipline process is intended for good, not for ill. Right? Not for shame, but for restoration. And in light of that great truth of the grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ by virtue of His death, His resurrection, His ascension on high, His role as forgiving mediator. Right now, I want to close all of us with this great reminder of the gospel that makes it happen. And that's Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 14. What a great word for all of us. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, we have been saved by God, Christians, holy and beloved. We've been totally forgiven and God totally loves us as His own. Even though we're sinners, as a result, put on a heart of compassion towards other people. Hurt in your gut for other people. Put on a heart of kindness towards other people. A heart of humility, of gentleness, and of patience. Sinners, as they interact with each other, they need patience with each other, don't they? Patience means a long fuse. Verse 13, bear with one another. That means tolerate one another. Put up with each other, if you will. We're all sinners. We all walk with feet of clay. We're all cracked pots. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord, just as Jesus forgave you, so also should you forgive them. And I always try to remind myself and other people, wow, we're supposed to forgive anybody else the same way that Jesus forgave us. How did Jesus forgive me? Man, He forgave all of my sins. And is there a sin that somebody's committed against me that's greater than the sin against that I have committed against God? Absolutely not. That is the forgiving heart of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to emulate as believers. And because He gives us of His Holy Spirit inside of us and the Scriptures, and because we're children of God, we have the capacity and the potential to forgive to that degree. We have the capacity for supernatural forgiveness. It is absolutely amazing, a gift from God. And with that, let's go ahead and give Him thanks and the glory. Father, we do thank You for this day. Thank you for the church, the body of Christ, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you purposed to build the church. It is yours. You've got the master plan. You're the master builder. You also allow us to be a part of the process of co-laborers with you. What a great privilege. Thank you for gifts that you give to the church. And also thank you for the church discipline process to help do maintenance with sin as we are all sinners. God, we need your help, we need your grace, we need your wisdom, we need supernatural patience, and we need your favor in this process. I pray that your hand of blessing and grace would continue to be on the Body of Grace Bible Fellowship, that we would always take sin seriously, but do it in a gracious and godly manner, seeking your glory in the restoration of fallen sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.